Hi, and welcome to another edition of Amana Podcast. Amana is a collective of people, places, things, and actions that transcend us and exploring your higher virtues, seeking truth, and what would take you off track from that and how do you get back on? And today we're going to do a role reversal where the interview is going to be on me. A few of a few people have requested that, and I couldn't think of a, a greater person to be asking me good good questions, and that is Russell Bishop. Say hi, Russ. Hello, everyone. Russell Bishop here. So I'll let you take it from here, Russell, and just kick off, and, and we start where we start. This is the nature of... Uh, Amana podcasting is kind of allowing either intuition or spirit to lead the questions and and uh, I'll become I'll, I'll respond as best as I can. Fantastic. So well, let's start with the Marna. How did you come by that name for your organization? Yeah, so I want to say this happened to me probably 20 plus years ago and um, <laughs> Funnily enough, I was driving to Ojai from Los Angeles to work with a practitioner. Um, I never believed necessarily in past lives or, or I certainly hadn't had an experience of past lives or anything of that nature. And there I was just driving along. It's about an hour and a half drive. And this whole world opened up to me about ancient Egypt and about this place called Tela Amana. And I could tell there was a pharaoh there and and there was a city, but I didn't I didn't see too much more about it, didn't understand much more. But I started having the experiences of what the experience was that would happen at that time, uh, which was it was a new city. It rained for 10 years. It had moved from the old world of many gods. Uh, and this was Akhenaten, who was the pharaoh of the time, that moved the whole city from the old city of the city of kings, I believe it was, uh, to what he called Tela Amana. And they believed in one god, the god of Ra. And he... Um, he had a wife, Nefertiti, who he also made an equal as a, as a pharaoh. And, you know, pharaohs back in that time, to my understanding, were the divine connection through God, but also what we'd consider a king and queen. So I, I ended up asking JR a lot about what was that about? Is that have any, is that real? Is not not real? And once again, for our listeners, JR was uh, our spiritual teacher and had a great insight into a lot of these type of um, past worlds. I got to understand that it was, and then I started to do research on it. I found out that it had been a mystery school, which is what could be looked at as a, a, a school of truth at the time period. Um, and I just had one of the greatest resonance with that time and it just it just stuck with me. So I took off the Teleromana, so or the Tell, if you will, to move away from an ancient kind of name 
and moved it into a mana. And I knew at some point I didn't want to be working alone. And I was working with my father and and I had some other companies. So I, I called it a group because I was looking for a group of people that would resonate with this. And I wanted to live in a in a city, if you will, or a place um, that had a greater sense of loving or a gra- greater sense of purpose. And and that's that's how that that's how I came up with that with that name. And I think what's interesting about the name is most people can't pronounce it correctly or spell it. Um, but the cool thing about it is people often ask me that question: What is a mana? What is what does that mean? So I get to kind of it opens people up a little bit, and I get to share some of the insights of what I care about uh, of why I called it Amana. Well, that's um, that's great. Probably a lot easier than saying the Akhenaten Group. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and it certainly uh, has an energetic with it, so I'm sure some people will resonate with that. Um, even before they get intellectually curious. So, super. Um, can you say some more about what your founding purpose was and how that may have evolved over time? Yeah, so I've, I've, I've worked a lot on my own individual purpose, um, which is, you know, essentially loving. You know, I don't want to probably even say the, the phrase that I have. I kind of keep that that one sacred but what the purpose with amana what i came up with was opening people to greater possibilities and i when i looked around and moving into um the business world i want what's an advantage that i could give people a lot of people are very skilled at their craft or at least learning their craft as they rise through the ranks of whatever their industry is and then when I started to look at, you know, CEOs and, and executive teams and, and board uh, members, it was, it, it was kind of lost on me where people were trying to defend in a company of combating what was coming at them rather than looking at, I guess, new grounds. So I thought if I could open people up to think about greater possibilities. One, from a selfish perspective, I get to partake in new opportunities and I get excited about that. But there's a whole new exploration that people get to go on and we get to work to define it, uh, to get clear about it, and then how to go about executing it. But it seems to be a constant thing in my business of, What's the new opportunities or what are the opportunities and the possibilities that are available to people at any one time? Because I have found that people get closed off to um, to what just is in front of them or the heaviness that's hanging over them. Mm. So a lot about helping people discover or become aware of opportunities yes and and i think even if we took it back to the original name you know Akhenaten moved the whole city so there was a new energetic there was a new dynamic 
there was a new uh, way of being. Um, there was a new, there was new laws to operate under. And I, yeah, I, I find that fascinating. I, it's not to poo-poo what's out there at this time because we've gotten this far in civilization that I, I do think we've progressed from, I don't know, living longer than 20 or, you know, disease or uh, living in war-torn countries constantly. Uh, I, I do recognize there's still a lot of war going on, but it's it's not the way that it's always been. So, uh, yeah, I do think there's a, a greater possibilities available. So sometimes in my work, I, I describe that idea that there are opportunities hiding in plain sight. Yeah. And I think you just alluded to that kind of thing, too. Like what's in front of someone? Do you have any particular keys or suggestions that might help someone listening to uh, get a glimpse at what is in front of them or what's being revealed or what's possible? Yeah, so from a technique perspective, um, a lot of business is operated, in my experience, out of the left brain. It becomes very rational, number crunching, um, you know, what's the next actions, let's get busy doing this, responding to situations, is the political side of things. When I've done things like off-sites or even working with individuals to open them up, there's one technique that I use. I don't know if you've heard of it, Russell. It's called sandpit psychology. Don't know that one. Yeah, so sandpit psychology has been studied for, for, for years, and it is taking symbols. So I have a bag of symbols that I will take uh, into a room and people think, oh, my gosh, what are we going to play with toys? But I have symbols, you know, from the animal kingdom to kind of darkness to uh, wise wise symbols, um, have lots of, lots of different symbols, uh, some uh, wonders of the world. And I... I'll ask them to go, I'll ask questions and let's say, for example, where do you see your future and what is being drawn to you out of these symbols that would draw you to your future? And I'll get them to pick up the symbol and they'll start to look at it and I'll say, start to describe to me what you feel, see, perhaps smell, um, is it hard? Is it soft? Is it? Or, or I'd start to move into the sensory system, and then and then often something starts to open up in the right brain. This has been used for years and years uh, in the marketing world to come up with marketing slogans. So I'll take what starts to open up through that right brain, which can be quite inventive, can be quite um, out of the rational thought. Because I think if we looked at a lot of people's mission statements of companies, to me, they're very left brain kind of boring, like, uh, let's lead the marketplace. You know, like if I heard that one more time, I think I'd slap myself silly. Um, but it starts to get very in inventive, you know, and 
I've had some really, really cool mission statements and purpose statements come out of that kind of work. There is obviously a longer process to it and, and a series of questions that I'll propose. And then, and then I'll bring their heart into it. So what I'm, what I'm attempting to do is create some type of quantum um, heartfelt right, right brain, left brain, and, and beyond that um, type of access into how they could think about what they're truly looking for. And some really, some really cool um, mission statements have, have come forward from it. <laughs> And for whatever reason, I can't think of any as a good example at this point. But if anyone would like to know, I'd be happy to share it with them if they wrote me an email. Sure. And, um, uh, you know, that exercise with the, um, uh, I'll just call it that collection of things that you bring into the room. Mm. It, there's, a, there's a similar exercise I've used in the past. It's a gestalt identification exercise. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you can frame a question and then have people go pick up an object they feel attracted to, or you can even just say, go find an object without any front end question. But as a person picks up the object, uh, instead of describing the object, I'm looking at a statue of Buddha, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's you pick it up and you look at it and say, I am a statue of Buddha. Mm. And you keep going, and I'm aware that I'm, and I'm aware of that, and I, I feel, and so some of the very kinds of things you were talking about, and it just takes it a step deeper when a person says, I am that, because yes. they can't say something out loud that isn't present inside of them. So it brings awareness to the focus. So sounds pretty similar just uh, an extra little ad there is to say, and this I am. I, yes, no, that's that's great. I will. I, I do do take it to look through that. Look through the 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 lens, I guess, of what that symbol may be, and what are they looking at, and uh, that that would definitely tap into that. I think what I go for though is. You know, in cartoons, we see the the, the light bulb moment, right. you know, the little light bulb or that cloud that comes up with that new bright idea, the epiphany, if you will. Sure. Um, and that's truly what I'm usually going for. And when you get that aha, it yep. resonates inside of you that it's it's hard to ever go back from. You know, yeah, I, it, in my own personal experience, way back. Uh, Goodness gracious, literally 50 years ago, I was in a Gestalt encounter group and they had modeling clay and they just put some music on and we played with it. And uh, I created a, a little dolphin. Mm. And the facilitator says, okay, so Russell, pick your object up and, and, and now I am. So... Uh, I am a dolphin, and I'm graceful, and I'm elegant, and I'm all this kind of stuff. And uh, the way I feel about myself is, and et cetera, et cetera. He says, well, that's great. But I was only looking at it from the top. And he says, well, turn it over. Well, this is the kind of clay that you'd use water with. So I'd use the water to make the top side very smooth. Mm. But underneath, I hadn't paid any attention. And I went, 
oh my God, underneath, I'm all cracked and I'm unfinished. <laughs> <laughs> and it's that kind of thing yes. that I think you're alluding to. Uh, I saw a surface level, but when I looked underneath and identified, that was indeed a light bulb moment that stayed with me 50 years later. Yeah. It is, it is, it's really these insights. And I did just think of um, a purpose mission statement that I actually love that um, came from the conscious athletes, which we'll, we may jump into at some point here. But yep. when, I was, when I was thinking about what's the purpose of working with an athlete, what experience am I trying to fulfill, and you know, there's the notion of the zone and, okay, that's a nice idea and what are the techniques to get into that? But I've listened to, I've said it multiple times when I've watched a, a great tennis match or a, a great golf game and I got, it's playing from the heart. So I came up with this slogan or purpose statement called the best results come from the heart. And uh, I truly believe that. I think when you're playing out of your heart, that the mind state tends to leave, the unconscious starts to kick in, and you're just leading from a place of just absolute, there's willpower in there, but there's definitely like this flow that tends to happen. And uh, it's not so cognitive and you're not working strategy, you are the strategy, you know. So that, that was a pretty cool mission statement that from doing that work by myself came up with that uh, purpose statement. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And, of course, to be in the heart, as you're talking about it, to be in the zone is to be in the present. Yes. And the, the mind isn't going into the past or into the future. It's not working from fear or analysis. It's just present. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier about loving, and of course, the heart is the seat of the loving. So, um, so true. Very neat. Now, you mentioned intuition. Yes. A bit ago, uh, uh, there's an Einstein quote I've always loved. He he said, "The intuitive mind is a sacred gift, and the rational mind is a faithful servant." Mm. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's, I've looked at that. I, that's a very nice way of putting it, but I've looked at that a lot and how, how you know, a, a rough way of saying it is how do people trust their instinct more. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a tool that I've used before. It's called Cognitive Processing Profile. It's got mm -hmm. this long name. It's a mixture of about 20-plus uh, assessment tools, and it, te it tests people for strategic capabilities in unfamiliar environments. Mm. And I remember taking this, this assessment, and you can't cheat on it. The reason you can't cheat on it is because you don't know what they're looking for or how they're answering it. It's the movement of the mouse. There's you know, fast, slow. But if you're if you're an IQ person, you won't get close to to, to getting the the answers because they're not a rational way of figuring out the way they've done this complex assessment tool. But I'll never forget getting into this place 
where in strategic environments, the analytical process was an adherence to strategic capability. And what was a real strength in strategic capability was the ability to trust your insights, not just your intuition, which I'll get to in a moment, but your insights and trusting it and going just without without thought, just got it, go. And I found that really fascinating because the people that I have been around who are, I think, good leaders That takes a lot of courage because you've got to be willing to make mistakes per se. Um, But it's not just, and this is not to leave the mind out. This is not to call analytical behavior poor or anything like that. I think a lot of data is highly useful. But to trust your insight and go. And the way that I work with myself and work with others around instinct or trust um, there's obviously the mind where we can collate the thoughts of or try to identify the thoughts that we're feeling. I believe in our stomach is our psychic center that can do pick up a lot of different information, um, often known as intuition. And I think there's, you know, the insight model that I learned and you could probably allude to how how this came forward. Russell was, you know, high self-conscious self, basic self. And they're certainly part of my process of intuition, like what's my higher self, the wise self accessing? What's my conscious self processing? And what's my basic self, which I think of as like a three-year-old that needs basic instruction, although has all that beautiful energy and enthusiasm about something. And when I consult with them, it's usually the basic self that I'll go to to try and access as much, I don't know, unfiltered innocence of response and and see if it's safe, if you will, to move and use that um, intuition and trust because it does take trust to, to access intuition. So it's one thing to, to have intuition, to use your intuition. It's another thing to how do you, are you willing to use it? Because uh, I've sat in a, plenty of meetings throughout my life and I see people who have good intuition, but they're stifled by either the boss or the political arena and they're not willing to use it and they'll they'll shut it down and and I actually think that crushes creativity uh it it, it disempowers um or can disempower I shouldn't say always but can disempower the whole group um if someone has some really beautiful insights coming from those places so there's some of the ways i access and work with intuition well, that's, that's beautiful. Um, I wrote a couple of things down as you were talking about that. Um, one is a phrase you will know because we've encountered it in some of the seminar work we've done in the past. Uh, the universe rewards action, not thought. Yeah. Um, and But that doesn't mean you can't think. Yes. It just means the thought doesn't produce the result. Uh, 
But when people get analytically twisted up in their knickers, they don't move till they think they have it all worked out perfectly. So I like what you said earlier about trust and go. Yes. And I added a, th- a third word after that is steer. Mm. Trust, go, and then steer because uh, just like the steering wheel on the car, even if you know where you're going, you're probably going to have to turn to avoid potholes or other cars <laughs> and so on and so forth. It's so, so true. That's, uh, I'll jot that down for myself for sure. I and you know, without giving, there's a process and insight that is that is highly revealing around. You know, the universe doesn't. Uh, what is it? Reward thought that rewards action. That's right. And uh, that changed my life. That process. It truly did. It was. I'm someone who did think a lot. I've got a pretty active mind and I've worked worked it a lot over the years to go, stop it, just just start moving, just start acting. You'll figure it out. You'll figure it out through the actions. And I, I think of a business leader who was like that, who was like a Steve Jobs. You know, Steve Jobs was just like, had a willingness to screw it all up, but just keep going, keep going, keep going. Because in that process, you'll figure something out. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, I remember uh, years ago, uh, uh, an amazing woman named Frances Hesselbein. She's still around. She's well over 100 years old now. But um, she ran a number of major organizations in the U.S. and uh Etc. I hadn't seen her in a bunch of years, and when we got together in her office, the first question she asked me didn't have anything to do with how are you, what's happening, what have you been up to. She looked at me and she said, Russell, what are you seeing that's not yet visible? Oh, wow. <laughs> it's a fantastic question, and it, it just so happens that um, – uh, she had been a, a sort of a student of Peter Drucker's, and that was one of Drucker's favorite questions yeah. because it was a way of, instead of saying, so what is your intuition telling you? It was, uh, what are you seeing not yet visible? And it takes you out of the, the, um, the rational mind, and it opens up. So if, if you could imagine what you're talking about with high self, basic self. Yes. Uh, what's the basic self seeing? What's the high self seeing? Yes. And now how do we align and ask those uh, aspects of ourselves to answer the question, not to ask our brain to figure it out? Yeah. Yeah, I, I use that expression of the, your quality of life will be based off the quality of questions you ask yourself. Yeah. You know, so going in and, and going, okay, what are the good questions here? And that, that takes a lot of practice. There's a, there's a lot of work in that. But uh, like like you were mentioning about that lady, I love that she has that willingness to ask you because she's going to find great your great wisdom, your great insight, rather than just, hey, Russell, what do you see here? You know? So very nice. And I like a, a parallel question, one I've used a lot. And, and when asking someone a question, they say, I don't know. My little cheeky retort, but a genuine question, well, if you did know, what would the answer be? <laughs> and it just asks people to, to go in and access the place where the answers lie. 
Yes. As in my experience, uh, just about everybody I've ever met uh, can say yes to both of these questions. Have you ever encountered something that went awry, slapped yourself on the side of the head and said, oh, God, I knew it? Mm. Because you knew it was going to go off the rails. You didn't do anything about it, and it went off the rails. Yes. And the parallel, has you ever encountered something, and it worked out perfectly, and you also go, yes, I knew it, and you <laughs> did. And so what I try to help people with, and I think this is part of what you're asking about in terms of recognizing opportunity and possible directions, is that the information is all there. Yes. The question is, J.R. would have said, the information is there. The question is, am I available to the information? Absolutely. Absolutely. And when we ask ourselves, well, if you did know, uh, what are you seeing not yet visible? Those kinds of questions step past that fear of the brain saying, but what if I'm wrong? And it just says, well, what if? And there's a possibility there that we can trust, go, and steer. Yes. Yeah. Trust is a big one. You know, trust is, trusting it is it's practice. You know, yeah. depends how, what's on the line, you know. Absolutely. If you, can, if you can become more and more detached and truly trust, my gosh, that's a powerful state to be in. And my experience says I don't have to trust that I'm right, mm. but I have to trust that I can steer. Mm. So I, I like to say, am I directionally correct instead of perfectionally correct? Uh, nice, nice distinction. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, you think of like uh, the story of uh, Edison and the light bulb. Mm-hmm. You know, there were over a thousand combinations of gas and filament before he got a light bulb. But if he'd been into, well, I got to get it right, my God, he'd still be by candlelight. <laughs> yes. He just knew there was an outcome. He just had no idea how many steps it would take to get there. So, Mark... Um, uh, let me go back to the conscious athlete that you, you mentioned before. Yes. Uh, you were a professional tennis player, and then you transitioned from player to coach. Mm-hmm. And then you transitioned from sports coach to executive team coach and consultant. Um, what can you say about that transition? And what was similar between player, sports coach, executive coach? Yeah, no, thanks. So, yeah, I, gr- I grew up being a tennis player, and, and uh, I would just say that I played at the level of professional tournaments. I never call myself a professional tennis player because I figured you've got to be in the top 50 in the world to make a living out of it. Um, but I, pl- I did play at a high enough level where, you know, you're training seven days a week, six hours a day, uh, and that includes rest, by the way, folks. So, uh, but rest is active. Um, and I was someone who had a really foul temper because I had high perfection running. So I was quite a confused tennis player. You know, like I had a lot of talent, but I, I would self-destruct or self-implode. Uh, I could hit an ace and get upset because it wasn't right on the dime that I wanted it. It was <laughs> There was some really stupid thinking that went on with my untrained mind. Um, I was probably a better coach 
because of all the frustrations that I had endured, um, I could start to I could start to understand where people were at, and I certainly had enough technical skill to teach people. But I I started to understand how they were thinking, um, how they were training, what the disciplines were, how to integrate habits. Then I had my my journey as I started to look. Um, I think I was around 16, 17. I thought, I want to move to America and study uh, psychology and play tennis, you know. So, those were the combinations that I kind of was leaning towards. And as I started to look into psychology, I, you know, this is not a... Uh, this is not being derogatory towards psychology. I think it's a wonderful field. I found it extremely limiting. You know, I found it really the study of the mind and I thought there's so much more that I've experienced than just trying to understand my mind, you know, and that there's there's all these counter effects and environmental effects and genetic coding that I'm dealing with and as I started to work with John Roger, a lot of that work started to open up for me. And I was never interested in spirituality or what would be perceived by people as spirituality. But I was certainly very much interested in, I come back to that loving space because that's, to me, playing life in the zone. And then when I kind of finished my tenure with JR and was looking at what I was going to do next, I... You know, I'd done um, a master's of spiritual science under his um, umbrella companies, uh, which t- requires a lot of tracking. And we had done a tremendous a lot of work with JR around, particularly in the medical field of like how your consciousness was being aligned with um, you, 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 where your blood is, what your what your pee count is, just a lot of health things that have all these cause and effects and you would track it for a long time to start to see the patterns sometimes over two years and learning things like freeform writing which is a process to let go of your emotions and and kind of your mind and to get them at least off you and this is a process that I've talked about in other sessions where you will write for a certain amount of time and then burn it not reread it um and so I was looking, I was looking at going, I was like, oh my gosh, what skill do I have right now just to hop back into the world? And I thought, well, I could go back to tennis coaching. So I did. I did it in in Calabasas. And um I had a buddy who was working out of there who's just, I think, still one of the best tennis coaches I've ever met. He was number one junior in the world at 16. So he and he got to about a hundred in the world. He's Grant Doyle. I've also done a podcast with him. And he was working with some really top pros that were up and coming. And I thought, you know, I could combine this. I could combine what I've learned through the conscious spaces. And because, you know, just teaching tennis, if you're just going to be a, uh, a country club coach, and this is not being derogatory towards country club closes, you are on there eight hours a day going good, nice shot. I mean, it's it's can be quite boring because you're not accessing all your knowledge, you know. So to work with some really talented people, it 
kind of pushes that front line. And uh, he gave me the opportunity. He said, I want you to work with a handful of my players. And I won't go into their names right now because I kind of like to keep that on the lowdown sometimes. And But it gave me access to really start to working with these people. Now, I had to think of a kind of a business name. I wasn't a clinical psychologist, nor did I want to be. So I just put it under the banner of sports mental coaching. Um, and I thought, well, what am I going to call this, this company? And at that time, using the word conscious was still really new. This would have been around uh, 2005. But in a business or, or sports context, that was uh, kind of like still in the woo-woo phase. But I went conscious athletes. That's what I'm producing. If you could be more conscious, and the truth is they need to be more unconscious, um, but they've got to go through a conscious process in order to train the unconscious to play. And so that's one, how I came up with the name. It led me into tennis. Um, we have a, a, a mutual friend in Julie Ellian who then led me into golf. Uh, and I really enjoyed golf, although I've never been a top golfer. I'm someone I would call myself a passionate golfer, someone that it's a sport that I care about um, and wanted to know more about. So I really moved into those two sports, and I was fortunate enough where I started traveling the world, going to these tournaments and, and working with these players in very critical positions. Uh, the first U.S. Open tennis tournament I ever did, I got both of my young players into the third round, and they were both 17 and uh, 18 at the time, which was, I thought, a pretty good achievement for two young players starting out. Um, and that, you know, then there's stories that go on and on about, about that. But it, doing the work, it ended up not being really about the sport. They were talented enough athletes to be there. I needed to manage their life. And what I mean by not me manage their life is really support them to manage their life. Because this, as you start to progress in professional sports, there's a lot of distractions. The media starts to come into play. The sponsors have influence, you know, your coaches, your parents, it starts to become this inner circle. But if you've got some negativity coming through that inner circle, my gosh, it can affect your performance. So not just was I teaching people how to integrate like what their coach was working with them on in terms of like uh, the next step or the next skill that would take them to the next level. At, at that level, often you're working on your weaknesses or your vulnerabilities um, because you've already got enough talent to get you there in the first place, but it's usually the leaking bucket in your weakness that will take you off course. So I ended up working, um, and still to this day, you know, I'm still working with players, um, that uh, works really with how they're managing their life and how they're integrating uh what they're trying to achieve and how they put the information in often a little faster than just, I say this roughly, a coach shouting at, at them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one little observation to, to, to make for you. 
in how your intuition guided you. Because uh, you said you came to America and you were interested in psychology. Yes. And that you were put off by that after a while. Um, and there's something there energetically that's important. Uh, psychology is a term that has come to mean the study of mind and emotions. Mm. That's what it says in the dictionary. But psyche is the Greek word for soul, and ology is the study of. And psychology originally meant the study of the soul. Mm. So how is spirit guiding? And so that's part of what you were talking about is uh, the conscious athlete is the one who knows how to go unconscious, to go in inside and access the natural knowing without letting the critical brain get in the way, which then goes to what you said earlier about well moving into the heart. Yes. And heart-centered and all that loving. So a lot of nice connections there. yeah, I didn't mean to poo-poo psychology at no, all. No, no. I, I probably do have. <laughs> my father's a psycho- uh, psychotherapist, and he rammed a lot of psychology into me throughout my life, where I was probably just being the stubborn child, going, "Ah, I don't, I don't need, uh, I don't need this stuff." I did at some point because of Jr. Actually, he said, "Reread the Inner Game of Tennis." And so I did do that, and I got to go spend some time with Tim Galloway. And God bless you, Tim. You're a great man who's uh, provided a lot of great information for people over the years with your writings and your coachings. Um, and he taught he taught me a bunch of – within one lesson, he taught me more than I'd worked with other coaches about myself and, yeah. and the game, and I was really grateful for that. So the other part of that is – when you can have that wisdom and expediate lessons, that's a pretty cool day. Absolutely. So as our time winds down, there's one big question that I want to make certain we get to. Um, what inspires you in both your work, your personal life, um, how you pursue and seek value and virtue in life? So what inspires you, Mark? Yeah, I... Well, I, I'll, I'll give the credit back to you and JR, Russ. I, when I took insight seminars at 14 and a half, I think I was, there was this moment, um, and this is a technical term, and, but, but I'll say it, you know, not to give away too much of the process because I wouldn't want, I want people to have their own experience, but there's a process in insight called the, the inner beauty process. And uh, people will share with you the inner beauty they see in you or the inner beauty that you may be hiding. And I remember going through that process and I didn't get picked either way. And I went, where do I stand in this world? I'm not standing out with shining my inner beauty, but I'm not really hiding it either. Am I completely void and not seen? And I remember getting up and sharing about that. And for whatever reason, you know, I burst into tears and was just in, in, a, in a state of like really just energy pouring off me. And uh, I looked around and there was a lot of people who, who were having tears also. Kind of that transference can happen when tears emote. Um, but some part of me at that point, my heart woke up or reawoke and it just bursted, absolutely bursted with 
with happiness and joy and freedom and liberation. Um, and probably these are flat words in terms of just saying them, and maybe I can give some context to them, but the greatest things that I know is uh, is loving, but it's, um, oh, I just forgot my term there. When, when you love it, unconditional loving is really what inspires me, is just that absolute willingness to serve and give beyond some symbiotic relationship where I need something in return. It's, it's um, you gave me a chipping lesson the other day. I couldn't have been more grateful because you were just doing it because you saw something and you were sharing with me for no other reason. That's what I felt. And it was, I was really touched by it. And, uh, and the other thing that I found through my spiritual journeys would be liberation. Mm. Um, it's to be here on the planet, but not be bound by, by my either the things that I would allow to control me. And that usually would come through either addictions, stinking thinking, um, repetitive thinking, uh, things that I ruminate in, things that I would judge or create separation with. I really work to move beyond those things and some of those techniques I've used like forgiveness because, you know, it's not like I'm not going to judge, but I, it's what I do with the judgment or evaluation. And I think I've learned to judge a lot less that's for sure. Um, and what really inspires me is sharing that with people. And I've been learning to do that in simpler ways, like cooking for people, um, you know, sharing a glass of water or, or just a person needs that. It's, it, it needs something. How do you show up? I worked all weekend with a, with a, a, a a friend of mine, she's an ex-girlfriend, but she's still a dear friend. And I just helped, she just moved. So I helped to clean up all her house. She needed that. And even though that's no, you know, psychic phenomena or in that or anything like that, I just think that's a way of exchanging uh, caring, you know, and, and that inspires me. That inspires me. And nature inspires me. And people's, when people's hearts are open, that definitely inspires me. And when an athlete wins something that they never thought was, they were capable of but wanted it so much and they put all that dedication into it, when Tiger Woods won that last Masters tournament, I was so inspired and people may judge his life process, but the ability to come back through adversity is just phenomenal to me because it takes more than will and discipline you know it takes it takes a lot of different components to um to get to that state well absolutely and um we started this call with heart and it seems like we're bringing it to a close there too to me you're talking about the true meaning of courage mm. The root word of courage is a French word, cour, which means heart. And the suffix, A-G-E, is a suffix 
in the old Latin that means to have the wisdom of. And so someone who's courageous has the wisdom of the heart, and then they have the strength to act on it. Um, that's someone, something that J.R. always taught me. I'm sure you heard it as well. To ask for the wit to perceive the, the will of God, but to have the strength and the courage to act on it. Yeah. Yeah. He's you seem to inspire people to do that. Yeah, no, well, thank you. I, I would often say I'm a collector of hearts. The people I keep close, some form or fashion, have beautiful hearts. And everyone has a beautiful heart, don't get me wrong, but I, the ones that resonate with mine, I, I, I seek out. Yeah. Yep. Beautiful. All right, Russell. Well, thank you so much for your willingness to uh, to ask me some great questions. It's 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 actually to, really nice to be on this side of the of the questions and and give my answers. And I hope our listeners uh, gain some value from from this conversation and maybe a little bit more insight into why I do what I do and why I'd like to share uh, these podcasts with people. So thank you, my friend. My great pleasure. All right, folks. Bye for now.